Thank you, Rachel. That was fun. Let's sing for our Lord. Uh, I've entitled this message, Let's Get Real. Um, I'm convinced that one of the greatest needs is for people to see God who love Him. Uh, people who love God. I got that backwards. Maybe the dyslexia is coming out of here. Great, one of the greatest needs is that people may see people who are in love with Jesus. So the title of this message is Let's Get Real. We're going to look at the last part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And there's just not room for games. There's people that need to see the Lord. People who are hurting and, and lives that need to be touched, guys. And as we look through this, we want to look at the importance of getting real before God. Being genuine before Him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to march down through our text. God, as we approach You, Lord, just pray, Father, that You might speak. Thank You, Father, for the joy of being able to sing before You. God, thank You for all the music. And Lord, You're what matters. God, we just need to be honest, to be real before You, God. And I pray that You might work, Lord. Father, just continue to speak to us, Lord. Father, I pray that You might fill me with Your Spirit and that You might spill through me among the people, God. Lord, just have Your way, God, in our time. And we'll just worship You, Lord. In Your name we pray. Amen. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and guys, we're going to start at verse 15. Uh, before I do that, I want to open up with an illustration I heard as I was studying this week of a guy who was really stressed out, and he decided that he needed something to help him relax. He went to his psychiatrist for help, and his psychiatrist said, well, what you need to do is to take up the game of golf. That'll help you. Well, that didn't work so good. He got even more stressed. I mean, that golf really got him in a bind emotionally. And so he went back to the psychiatrist, and he said, you know, I... I think I enjoy golf, but I think I'm even more anxious and depressed since I've started playing because it doesn't work like it's supposed to. That little ball drives me nuts as I try to hit it. And so the psychiatrist said, well, I have an idea. He says, you, you just need to take some techniques and practice them and it'll help you in your golf game. He said, go out there and you need to go through a course of holes and just don't take a ball and just pretend what you want to see happen, and, and, and play that way. So he went out to the course, and he put his tee down, placed his imaginary ball on it, got back, swung that club. He goes, oh, look at that beautiful 260-yard drive. Man, that's great. It's right up there on the green. Yes. So he went up there to the green, and then he, he says, oh, beautiful putt. Went right in there. He says, I actually made it under par. And I mean, things were going great. He went hole to hole. Things were wonderful. Then he got to the 18th hole. And he met another guy that came up there when it was time to hit off, and he didn't have a ball either. He had obviously been, go, obviously been going to the same psychiatrist. So they came up there, and man, they were fired up. Guy said, I'm having a great round of golf. The other guy said, I'm having a tremendous round of golf. He says, well, I'll bet you ten bucks that I'll do better than you. He goes, you're on. And so the guy swung and he said, amazing 280 yard drive. I mean, look at this. This is just incredible that this is happening. He says, look at that shot. It went right over the pin and the reverse spin on it brought it right back into the hole. I win. 
The other guy said, no, you don't. That was my ball. (laughs) Guys, there's people out there that are going through life like that. They're not really in reality. They're living a dream. They're living a fantasy. But they're not really connected. As we look at Solomon in this section of Scripture... You find a guy who started out an idealist. But he took some hard bumps along the way of life. And he actually became a pessimist. And you know, someone has said a pessimist is a guy that every time he stops to smell the flowers, he's looking around for a funeral. You know? And that that was Solomon. Because of those hard bumps, he was hurt. Charles Colson said, Life is... Not like a book, it's a mess most of the time, and our theology must be lived out in the midst of the mess. Well, let's uh, let's go down through our text here, and we want to take some time to look at the mess. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness, and a wicked man living long in his wickedness man he's he's disillusioned he's looking around him and he says why is it that the people who are they hurt people they cheat they don't have respect for those around them they steal why are they prospering god why is this happening and uh it, the result of that just brought him down. It reminds me of from Psalm 73. Here's the words of Asaph, the song, ancient songwriter. He, Psalm 73, first five verses, it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free. From the burdens common to man, they are plagued by human ills. Basically, Solomon said, you know, it just, guys, it just really bugs me as I look around at stuff that doesn't make sense. Those who shouldn't be prospering are prospering. Those who should be prospering aren't. And, uh, you know, we, we have a tendency when we think of God, there are different views, different perspectives. First perspective are those who look around at the mess and they say, because there's a mess, there must not be a God. Because the mess exists, there can't be a God. He wouldn't allow this mess to be here. (laughs) You know, it doesn't make intellectual sense. Can't understand God, can't explain God, therefore He must not be. And uh, guys, you know, we could spend time looking at evidences of that. Quite frankly, I think Richard would probably be a lot better for that kind of thing than me. But um, you, you can do that. You can spend time there. But the bottom line is... God is real. God exists. A story of a teacher. She got around some small kids. Devout atheist. Loved to push that fact. Came in with the kids and says, uh, How many here are atheists in this class? Kids didn't really know what was going on. They're like, Yeah, I am, I am. There's one little girl over here, though. Really beautiful little girl named Lucy. Lucy says, I'm not an atheist. And she says, Well, what are you? She says, Well, I'm a Christian. She says, why are you a Christian? She said, well, because my mom and dad love the Lord. 
Jesus Christ. And they've taught me to love Him. And she said, well, that's a stupid thing. She said, if, if your mom was a moron, if your dad was a moron, would you be a moron? He said, think about this. He says, what would you be? She said, well, then I guess I'd be an atheist. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I, I think about that. I kind of joke about that. Because, guys, really, that's the most crazy intellectual thing. If you are honest and really seek, God, are you there? I believe you can't miss Him. I believe if you're intellectually honest, you'll see God. He'll point Himself to you through nature and through many other avenues. He's there. He's real. And then there's a second perspective, the agnostic, which in Latin means I don't know. It's kind of interesting because the Latin equivalent of that is the word ignoramus. You know, you hear some people and they say, well, I'm an agnostic, man. I just don't understand it all. And so God's out there, but it doesn't really matter. But you don't hear them say, well, I'm the ignoramus. You, know, you, don't, you, don't hear, you don't hear that translation. Then there are those, thirdly, who say, well, God, He just kind of, you know, he created everything, but he just kind of sits back and watches and lets us work it out. He's uninvolved in our lives. And that could be the furthest thing from the truth. You matter to God and God loves you and He is the God that's in charge. He is the God that, that you can count on. He's the God that has a purpose and He has a plan for your life. And I think of the illustration of Elijah that we read about in First Kings. And... uh as we read about him, he has this showdown. And he has a showdown with uh, these other gods. And he's standing for the Lord God, Jehovah. They're standing, it's got like 800 false prophets, these other gods. And, and, and man, they're calling out, they're cutting themselves, they're screaming. And, and they're asking that their gods would come down and bring fire down on this sacrifice in this contest. Nothing happens. Matter of fact, I want to read to you, this is from uh, 1 Kings 18 about that encounter. And uh, as, they're, as they're going crazy, and as they're screaming, this is verse 25, uh, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first. So they prepare everything, and then down the next verse, they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, answer us. Uh, then in verse 27, Elijah, man, he was He was cruel. <laughs> says, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder! Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. But then, guys, I love it because then it's Elijah's turn. He wants to say, God's out there, man. You seek Him, He'll show Himself to you. And he tells everybody, he says, okay, this sacrifice here, uh, you guys had a turn, you asked your gods to bring down fire, it didn't happen. He says, guys, I want you to go, I want you to go get these four large jars of water and pour it all over the sacrifice. This happened three times, so 12 large jars of water were poured on the sacrifice. And then, then Elijah prays to God. And I thought... Guys, I'll be honest with you, I thought about this. I said, man, this would be a great memory verse. I need to memorize this. But 36 and 37, listen to his prayer. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, 
O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Man, I love that. He says, God, I want you to show everybody that you are God, that you're the Lord. And I want them to turn back to you, Lord. That's my passion, God. I want them to turn back to you because you're, you're awesome, God. You're my life, God. And I, I want you to show yourself holy and mighty and powerful. And guess what? God showed up! And I love it as you read on here. It says the fire came down. And man, not only did it lap up the water, but it burned up that sacrifice and just a puff of smoke coming up, man. God did it to the full. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Max it out. That's what He wants us to enjoy is that kind of life. Okay, uh, number four is spiritual idealism. There are those that view God and they say, well, you know, um, name it and claim it is the idea. And the idea is you've got to have a positive attitude or God can't work. You know, you can't say stuff like, <coughs> man, I think I'm getting sick. Don't do that! You're going to get sick! Man, that uh, it's going to enter your body, that virus is going to get in there in that cold, and it's going to grab a hold, and you're going to be sick just because you think that way. God, that stuff just drives me nuts. When we try to manipulate God, and we say it's based on me being positive, well, I can be positive in telling you that sometimes He's just going to send some hard stuff your way. And He does it because we've got to grow up. James chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, He says, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and that perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, He sends a tough time, so you'll grow up. Guys, that you'll be able to leak Jesus like He wants. You know, and, and so the spiritual idealism doesn't cut it at times. Alright, so that brings us to being real, which is the fifth one, which is what he wants. Biblical realism. A uh, couple of reasons for evil as you search through the scriptures. One is there's an evil super being, an arch nemesis. And he's good at what he does. He's real good. He knows you guys because he watches you. He knows where you're weak. He knows how to attack. And my wife and I, when we pray, we say, God, do a mighty work among us, but keep that old devil out of here. And we're not smart enough to fight him, God, so you fight him. I always, you know, when we pray, I think of James chapter 4, verse 7. It says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Guys, we talk about resisting the devil. Before we can resist him, we got to submit to God. He says that first, submit yourselves then to God, then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Guys, that's so critical. So there's that evil super being, the devil out there, is one reason. Secondly, just because people are stupid. We just do stupid stuff. So, hey, I'm going to go. He says, see this stuff? I'm going to see if it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. When you step out of sight of God's safe pasture, it hurts. Third is freedom of choice. You think, 
Lord, why did you give me the choice to be stupid? Because without it, the choice to love Him would be forced. And God wants you to love Him of your own account. It's His heart, guys. It's what He wants to do. Okay, let's move on down through here. Uh, Verse 16 of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked. Do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Be wise, but don't be over-wise. Don't act more spiritual than you really are. I love that. Don't act more spiritual than you really are. Man, sometimes we're so spiritual that we leave Jesus out. Look how spiritual I am. I remember reading a book years ago. I don't remember what book it was. But it talked about bunny faith. You know what bunny faith is? We come to church and we hop around. We go, oh, <laughs> don't you love Jesus? I love Jesus. Let's be with Jesus together. You love Jesus, I love Jesus, let's be with Jesus together. And so you hop around from place to place and you have this real sweet little faith thing and then you leave. Guys, it would be great if we could just enjoy worship together and and just be fed by His Word and His heart and His Spirit. But there's a balance. We're called not to just have a little Christian commune and enjoy one another, but to go out to a world that's hurt and to share the compassion of Jesus Christ. We come here in order to be encouraged and strengthened so we can go out there. That's so critical that it works together. We're called to worship so that we can be on mission, guys. That works together. Um, Back to Psalm 73, this idea of why are the wicked uh, working, why are they uh, continuing forward. Let me read verses 18 19 before I hit there, though, Psalm 73. It's good to grasp, this is verse 18, the one and let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Man, when we look and we look at the prosperity of the wicked and those who don't care about God or people, we're only looking short term. They might be prospering now, but not long term. Matter of fact, if you go back to Psalm 73, that's where I said earlier, Listen to, to verses, end of verse 16, on to verse 20. He says, It was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Has a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So he's looking at this and he's looking around him and he's looking at the chaos. He's looking at those who are mean and how they seem blessed. Then he gets a good perspective and he takes a good look at himself. Look at verse 20. So critical to take a good look at yourself. There's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right. And never sins. Guys, he uh, he's thinking about how mean all these people are, how evil they are. Then he stops a minute and he says, wait a minute. There's nobody that has their act all together. You've heard it, and I have too. I love the old saying, says, uh, you know, everybody wants a perfect church. Well, if you ever find it, don't join it or you'll ruin it, right? Because none of us are perfect. None of us are without sin. None of us can be held in such high regard 
that there will not be disappointment down the road. Guys, I want to love you, but the truth is I'm going to disappoint you because I don't have it together either. None of us do. That's why we need a Savior. See? And he says here, he looks around, everybody's in that predicament. And uh, look at verse 21. He says, do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. He says, so, sometimes you can't shut someone else's mouth, so you just need to shut your ears. Sometimes people say things that are hurtful, and sometimes we just kind of need to let it go. But then he goes on beyond that, and he, he says, sometimes I say things that are hurtful. We're all susceptible to that. We're all susceptible to our mouths just running without reason and bringing pain. And so he's saying here, don't be too harsh. Don't be too critical of those who do that. And I think of the Apostle Paul. Man, if there's a guy, as you read through the Scriptures, that seemed to have it together, it was Paul. He did all this great stuff for God. And it would have been so easy for Paul to have the super ego It had been so easy for him to say, well, you know, if you look at the speakers on the church circuit, I can give you some really impressive stats of all the people that have come to Jesus because of my fantastic abilities in ministry. He could have done that stuff. But that's not how he viewed himself. Listen, this is from Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8. No wonder God used this man, guys. He said... Or he wrote, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Man, I love that. He says, I became a servant. Not the guy you need to come here and see, but one who serves you. And and how did he say he became a servant? He said, of this gospel, this good news, it was the gift of God's grace. It's His grace, His gift. What we don't deserve given to us because He loves us. And he goes on, and I love that part. He says, that grace as it was in work through me, it came through the working of His power. And, And guys, may we pray that way. God, show up. May your grace in my life be evidenced by your power at work through me so that wherever I go, God, there's your touch. Wherever I go, I'm able to leak Jesus, that, that the Spirit of God will go through me. You know, that was Paul's heart. That's what he wanted. And he said, that's why things are happening because God's doing that work and, and He's given me that grace to do this and, and He's at work because I know it's His power and it's not me. And, and God is blessing it. And we need to have that same attitude, that same heart. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. And you just can't get away from that. Uh, This came out from the Minnesota Crime Commission a few years ago. Listen to this. They made this statement. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge. No skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children, are born delinquent. 
If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign of their impulsive actions to satisfy each one, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Now, along with that, I ran across this thing called the toddler's laws of possession. Maybe y'all have heard this. I love this. This is a toddler talking. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. (laughs) If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, you're right, it's mine. (laughs) If you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) That's our nature. Now, let's let's move on here. Verse uh, 23. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. So what does he say? Um... He says, I just don't understand all this. It's over my head. I don't have the answers. And isn't it funny when you're young, you, th- you come to that stage where you think you know it. You know it all. And the authorities, your parents, other people, they don't know anything. You got it figured out. Something happens. And you know, it seems to me what I'm discovering is the older I get, the less I know. It just gets harder. Why? Because I'm able to see how much I need God in my life, guys. How much I need Him. Um, for time's sake, I'm going to skip down at this point and, and share an example. We all need a Savior. And I heard a story. It's in one of Max Lucado's books about a friend of his who went to Disney World. And, uh, of course, they had a great time. and They ended up at Cinderella's Castle. There were all these kids, and they were piled around, and they were excited. They were excited because the pristine princess Cinderella was going to come. So out comes Cinderella, this beautiful girl with perfect skin, every hair in place. She comes out beautifully dressed with a sweet smile. She comes out, and all the kids run over where she is, and they just want to touch Cinderella. They just want to be touched by Cinderella. But then this friend, he said, he looked over and he saw one child who was with his brother. His brother was holding his hand. He was by himself. And uh, this one child, um, he was handicapped. And he had some deformities and he was smaller. And uh, you could tell as you looked at him... uh, He wanted to be over where the other kids were. But he was afraid of being hurt. He he was afraid of being rejected. And the most amazing thing happened. Cinderella turned and saw him. 
And she kind of pushed away from the kids. And she had to kind of fight through the crowd. And she walked over to where the little boy was. And as she walked to him, when she came close, she knelt down. And she kissed him on the forehead. You know, that's really what Jesus has done. Guys, spiritually, we're not attractive in the mainstream view of beauty. But Jesus came, and spiritually, He gave us His beauty. He gave us His kiss, guys. He worked in our lives, God. And uh, He took our disfigurement and exchanged it for His beauty. We gained His beauty. He took our disfigurement and He went to the cross. And thus we have the beauty of Christ, His forgiveness, because of the cross, guys. Um, And so part of this invitation here, as I think about real living, is it must begin with understanding that spiritually we all start out ugly because of sin. We all have that battle. And there is no one here who doesn't need a Savior. And so as I look out to all of you, I plead with you and I beg with you, let the Prince of Peace, not the Princess, but the Prince of Peace, give you His beauty. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed by our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we were healed. There are people out here today who are hurt, and you've been trying to figure this chaos out by yourself, and I'm here to tell you that you won't always have all the answers, but the Prince of Peace wants to change your life, wants to give you a new start. He's the Savior. And so this invitation is for you if you have never said, Prince of Peace, enter my heart, forgive me of my sin. I'm ugly and what I've done, and you can make me new and beautiful in you. And, and all you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin, come live in my heart. He promises to give you His beauty for your disfigurement. Secondly, guys, um, I have to go quickly here with this, but I'll give a message to those who have known His touch. Guys, we live in an area here where there is such a saturation of the message of the gospel that people hear it. And they hear it. And they hear it. And they hear it. But what I want is for you to hear it. There's too many people that hear it and they come forward and they're baptized and they disappear. And God set us on fire. God, help us to be real and and to be your hands and feet and and, and to touch lives, God, to be your instruments of grace. And and, and that's necessary. And and, and I know I'm out of time, but I want to spend a couple minutes on this because it's just really on my heart, guys. Um, A strategy here for for those of us who, who need to be real and we're not. Just three things here, all right? Stay with me. Hang in there. Number one, prayer wise. Wake me. Say that with me. Wake me. Wake me. All right, uh, turn me to Isaiah 52, verse 1. 
Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Awake. In Ephesians 5, in verse 8, it says, Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And then it goes down a little further. And and he says, this is why it was said, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Guys, listen, you trusted Jesus and you walked away from... I'm, I'm saying, wake up from your slumber. Wake. Awaken, church. This community needs Christ. And you know how, they, how, how they're going to find out about Him? Through you and me. But we got to wake up. Got to wake up. Secondly, still in Isaiah 55, not only wake up, ask God to shake me up. Now, uh, verse 2, shake off your dust. Rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. God, say with me, the Lord, shake me up. Lord, shake me up. Um, Get that dust off. Stop sitting around. Stop making excuses. God, not only wake me up, but shake me up. You know, someone has said that the, the job of God is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And we get too comfortable and, and God wants to shake us up. And for us to be the church, King's Way, we must let Him shake us up. And one more, and as the old mountain saying is, stick a fork in me, I'm done. Uh, break me. Wake me, shake me, break me. Turn me to the book of Leviticus. Chapter 26. God is talking. And He's, he's making it clear. He says, if you serve me and you love me, there's reward. If you disobey me, there's discipline, punishment. Spiritual spanking, I like to call it. Uh, verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, he says, if you reject my decrees, abhor my laws, fail to carry out all my commands and violate my covenant. And then he goes on, he talks about the spiritual spanking, guys. Then he gets down to verse 19. L- look at this, he says, uh, I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. Last, he says, I'll break your stubborn pride. Wake me, shake me, and last, God, if you need to, break me. I tell you what, guys, we are so self-centered and full of ourselves, we don't even know we're self-centered. I'm convinced of that. I see it in me. And I know it's the human nature. And God says, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Guys, listen to God. If He's speaking to your heart, don't don't fight Him. Let go of stubborn pride. He's not going to be able to work until you humble yourself before Him. And so, okay, I'm at the invitation here. If you haven't trusted the Savior, this is open to come down to pray. I'd love to pray with you, speak with you. If you are a believer, if you've known His touch, 
but you're asleep. Uh, that my prayer is that he'll he'll wake up, that you'll be able to wake up, and that he'll shake you up, and and that he'll break you for his kingdom and his purposes. That's, that's what he wants to do. So we, this is open. Now it's just time for us to be obedient. Respond. Let's pray, and then we're going to respond. Lord, whew. God, uh, work. That's all I can say, God. Uh, I, it doesn't really matter, God, if people are convinced. We need convic- conviction of your Spirit. It's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So, Lord, we invite your Spirit to work. Help us say yes to your call, whatever that may be. To come to the altar to pray, to come to the front, to make a decision, and to publicly make it known whatever that may be, to trust you for the first time to receive the life that you give, the forgiveness available at the cross, or to wake up and to be shook up and to be broken for you. God, uh, have your way this morning, Lord. We need you, Lord. So, Father, just like Elijah, we pray that you show, show us that you're God. Oh, Lord, and that as a result, you'll bring people back to you. In your name we pray. Amen.